Mythos Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to episode number six of the Thoth Hermes podcast. My name is Rudolf and I am your host and it is my great pleasure to welcome you back here on this week's episode. Today is the 1st of October of 2023 and my guest here today will be a returning guest and somebody I think many of you are very happy to find again I think it's the fifth time that he now appears on this podcast, but you can never get enough of John Michael Greer. And today we're going to talk about three occultists of the early 20th century and, well, one even a bit later, uh, who part of them have a bit gotten forgotten and we should remember them better. Diane Fortune maybe is the best known of the three. John Gilbert, who is an American occultist who... John Michael Greer knew in person and who hardly everyone knows anymore and two books just recently have appeared and will cause that this memory comes back and then there is Muni Sado. Okay we are going to talk about all of that later in the interview for the moment. It's just a pleasure to have you here and uh, um, I hope that you enjoy the show here. I want to thank everyone who is a returning listener here and I see that this long nine months or even more than nine months break that I took didn't didn't hold you back of coming all of you back to listen and that's really really great Uh, thank you for that and um, well thanks to those also have have kept uh, being supporters of uh, of the show by being patrons on the patreon um website and it would be nice if there were a bit more of them patreon.com thought hermes podcast or go on the website thoughthermes.com t-h-o-t-h-e-r-m-e-s.com and of course you'll find the patreon button there and there is also a new button on that site buy me a coffee as of course i like coffees so if you don't want to go on patreon and do this do this uh weekly little support by starting with one dollar per episode you can also just buy me a coffee once if you wish and go there click on the button or do a donation whatever is easier for you all the support that you can give us is appreciated because of course producing a show costs and somebody has to carry that cost so if you help me with that that would be great Wonderful. Um, while you're on the website, why don't give me your feedback and uh, send me your music? I'm a bit behind with the playing of music and one or two of you, I have to apologize, they will be mentioned in the next two or three shows and uh, who have sent me some music already and who have uh, not yet been played here. And I will do that, no worries. Everybody who sent me music and when music fits uh, to the show will be will be performed here, of course. So please send, do send me your music, do send me your feedback and uh, stay with us, stay with the show. And 
talking about music, one of the reasons why it sometimes takes a little bit of time is also because I love to discover music myself. You know that my background is in classic music, is in voice, and I have such a weak spot when I discover young artists with a wonderful voice. And, well, the first piece of music that we're going to hear here today is such a young artist. Uh, I just came across her on, on, on YouTube and her name is Julia Falcone. And as far as I know, she has just appeared on this year's um, series of The Voice, that famous talent-searching TV show. But this uh, recording that I found here is predated, so it's before her appearance on video. So let's see what she will do on The Voice. But I find what we can hear here in a moment just really extraordinary. It's uh, The song is called Your Love, and you probably know it because it's from that famous movie Once Upon a Time in the West. But the way she sings it, my God, what a lovely voice and what a lovely interpretation. And with that, with Julia Falcone singing Your Love, we will start into this episode. You know, I always want you to discover music with me, so I hope you'll enjoy. And uh, let's go and listen to Julia Falcone with Your Love from the movie Once Upon a Time in the West. Enjoy. Life too. 
what a great voice and what a lovely song and what a beautiful interpretation. Julia Falcone singing Your Love from Once Upon a Time in the West and we can only wish her good luck for her appearance on The Voice. Right, so it is John Michael Greer and it's really, really lovely to have him back. As always, we are doing this interview via phone with him. That's the way he chooses to do it and it's it's just so incredible when you just ask him a question he knows the things he tells you everything about it and you can learn so much from jmg well the reason why we talk about diane fortune john gilbert and muni sadhu this week is not only because john knows so much about them and of course because all three of them are highly interesting figures in the occult history and world at least two of the three are a bit forgotten. Diane Fortune, she's a bit better known than the other two. But uh, for all three, there are new um, publications that I want to mention. And we will, of course, also see them on the show notes of this show. So the first, as mentioned before, is Diane Fortune. And our friend John Michael Greer, he has... Over the last year or two, on his blog, uh, on his website, um, commented on the Unfortunate's main work, The Cosmic Doctrine. And now he has gathered all those commentaries, all those really interesting texts that he has written there, and into one book, the commentaries on The Cosmic Doctrine by the Unfortunate. And that was the reason why we were talking about her in the first place. And then... Two books by John Gilbert were just released also by the same uh, publishing house, actually, like the Dying Fortune book, Aeon Books. The Tree of Spirit, which has a subtitle, Lessons on Tarot, Kabbalah and the Spiritual Path. And the other is called The Doors of Tarot, Lessons for the Practical Diviner. And as you will hear, John Gilbert was an extraordinary tarot reader and we will talk about him, about how all this came into being, what happened in those years uh, after the Second World War, basically, in America, in North America. It's really fascinating what John has to tell us there. And then the last person, Muni Sadhu, Muni Sadhu, who actually was already mentioned two weeks ago here on the show when I spoke to Charlotte Cole and her edition of the Silver Age Russian Rosicrucians and Muni Sado was a kind of a student of G.O. Mibes, one of those main personalities we talked about two weeks ago and he has published this wonderful, wonderful, great book on the tarot but it's not a tarot book as you would expect it normally. It's a book on hermeticism. It's a it's a course in 52 lessons, I think it's 52 or 56 lessons on Hermeticism. Really great, deep knowledge and it's it's really, uh, I'm working it through at the moment and it takes a week per lesson just to get through and to get it into your mind. Great stuff, also published actually by Aeon Books uh, from the United Kingdom. So all those books that I mentioned here now will be on the show notes and you can find links there and uh, can of course be purchased if you're interested. Right, um, well I think that's all that I had to say. I will come back to you 
in the middle of the interview and we will play some completely different music from what we just heard. A very eclectic music program here again today. And um, well, enjoy the talk, the first part of the talk with John Michael Greer. And uh, we'll hear music in about 35-ish minutes again. And now meet John Michael Greer. Here comes the interview. It is a great pleasure once again here on the Thought Hermes podcast to welcome John Michael Greer as our guest. And I know many people have been waiting for your return here. John Michael Greer, welcome. It's great to have you back. Thank you very much for having me on again. It's always a pleasure. Uh, thank you. Um, well, this episode's subtitle today is Oldies But Goodies. And people might ask <laughs> themselves, well, what are they going to talk about? Well, um, we're going to talk about three distinct um, personalities of the occult um, who, well, the first we're going to talk about will be Diane Fortune. And she, of course, she has not been so much forgotten like the two other ones. But I think all three of them merit that we have a close look on them over and over again. And But before we delve into the three in detail, um, John Michael Greer, um, why does it always happen that people like that disappear? And even though their work has been rather important and keeps, of course, being important for us today. What's, what do you think are reasons for that? Well, it's complicated. On the one hand, we've got a society that likes to pretend that nobody really actually believes in magic anymore. Um, mm. You hear this all the time, people talking about how magic is just this primitive superstition, and only people in like backwards third world countries believe in it. They know perfectly well that there are plenty of people practicing magic here and now, but nobody wants to admit it. Um, magic <laughs> these days is kind of the way that sex was a uh, hundred years ago. You know, everyone was having sex, but nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah, the Victorian <laughs> age, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. So we've got this sort of Victorian taboo against uh, you know magic and admitting that, like the you know these, these you know, people right now are busy engaged in in, in such practices. Oh, so yeah. there, there's that, and so erasing anybody, any erasing anybody you can erase, and pretending. It worth people you can't. Um, William Butler Yeats, the poet, is a great example. Mm. Of course, you know he's a Nobel Prize winner. He's one of the great, one of the one of the few really great poets in in English from the 20th century. You can't exactly ignore his existence. Of course, he was also an important figure in the early days of the Republic of Ireland. So yeah. you know, there's this political presence, there's this huge cultural presence, there's this literary presence. But for years after he died, the absolute rule was don't mentioned that he practiced magic and the guy was up to his eyeballs in magic he was an initiate of the golden of the hermetic order of the golden dawn he was involved in theosophy he was all over the occult scene he was a major league occultist he wrote some some very important occult writings we don't want to talk about that it's you know it's 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 icky or something like that Mm -hmm. um so there's that whole process that, that we're just kind of pretending these people didn't exist because it it it, it um, interferes with our pretensions of being all modern and up to date and rational. Um, 
Secondly, we've got the, the mythology of progress that pervades modern society, the notion that whatever is new is by definition better, especially when it's not. And, you know, whatever is mm-hmm. old must be worse even when it's not. So yeah. we don't want to talk about the unfortunate anymore. We don't want to talk about Munisad with these people. It's old stuff. We want this cutting edge, brand new, um, hot off the press. You know, it sells books, and, uh, mm-hmm. too, you know, for which I'm grateful. <laughs> but, you know, some of the old books are better than a lot of the new ones. I, I, I read some of the classics and I go, okay, I need to work even harder to try to, to, try to get up to that level. Yeah. But, we have, but there is this mythology of progress. And so uh, the, the number of people who, get, um, who, who just forget about anything that happened before they were born, because that's just, that, that's history, that's old hat. And so I think those are two of the reasons. I'm sure there are others why, you know, the great magical uh, figures of the 20th century um, uh, well, about the first thing that you just said, I, I, that reminds me of C.J. Jung, who in mm-hmm. his dissertation, I think he was basically saying that the people who who are working on uh, spirituality or, or magic or, or, or whatever mm-hmm. uh, are basically uh, have a sick mind, right? But then he himself <laughs> turned towards it, which was very okay. funny. And he was very good friends with J.R.S. Mead as well. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The, the, thing, the thing is, Jung, I, I, I am convinced that Jung was an occultist who managed to pass himself off, off as a psychologist. <laughs> he, he, you know, he decided, okay, you know, you do not make a good living in the occult field. You can, but it takes a lot of work. And, you know, I can be respectable. I can get my MD, my, my, MD, my medical doctor's degree. I can go to work in psychology. I can fictionalize my entire life in the pages of memory, streams, reflections. Nobody has to know that I'm actually a wizard. Mm-hmm, <laughs> but he mm-hmm, was. Yeah. He was. He certainly was. Yes, was. absolutely. <laughs> I agree. I agree with you completely. Well, um, let let's go to the first of those three. Well, mm-hmm. she might not like that you call her a wizard. Probably, I don't know. Uh, let's go to Diane Fortune. Diane Fortune. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, uh, you can give us a bit of the background because she comes out of that age that had you just mentioned where sexuality was forbidden, well, forbidden oh, yeah. but was basically was basically well, something bad by definition. You, and you don't talk about it, yes. Exactly. exactly. Born in the Victorian age, I think in 1819 mm-hmm. in, yeah. in Wales somewhere. Mm-hmm. And yeah. how, how did she become one of the most famous and most important occultists of her time? Well, she she grew up in a um, in an upper middle class family, a well to do family. She had a lot of opportunities to um, to explore different things. Her mother took up Christian Science when she was a girl, so mm-hmm. she was she she had a lot of a lot of interests. She was by the time she was I think what was she nine at the time when she published her first book? It was a book of poetry called oh, Of really? Course Violets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Her, her legal course, name, of course, her was, was Violet Mary Firth, yeah. Yes. And so mm-hmm. Violets, it was this absolutely classic, you know, little girl's poems, but they were actually pretty good for little girl's poems. But her parents had the money to pay for the publication, of course. Mm-hmm. So to some extent, she had, you know, she had the freedom to do this. And she, and of course, she hit, the, she hit young adulthood at a time when occultism was all over the place in British society. Yeah. You had the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn running at top speed. You had the Theosophical Society. You had dozens of other organizations and orders and lodges that were all teaching occultism. Um, 
And so she had a couple of run-ins with, with various things that made it very clear to her there was something other than superstition going on. She ended up as a student of Dr. Thomas, Dr. Thomas Moriarty. Now, mm-hmm. whenever I use that name, everyone thinks, ah, is that Dr. Moriarty from the Sherlock Holmes stories? Well, it would be really funny to do a version of a kind of, a kind of retro history thing in which, yes, Dion Fortune studied with that Dr. Moriarty. But as far as I know, no. <laughs> it would be a food. But Thomas Moriarty was, a, was, was an occultist, was a very well-respected occultist. He had his own magical order. He, he published several books of his teachings. Um, she was one of, his, one of his senior students, was initiated by him into, into the de- various the degrees of his order. And she also worked with uh, a number of significant occultists at the time. She was involved with, I'm losing the name right now, but the guy who was doing all of the uh, channeled work at Glastonbury, Bly Bond, for um, right. Bly yeah. Bond, yes. Yeah, she yeah, was yeah. one of his... She was one of his mediums, in fact. Oh, really? She had a talent. Oh, you know, she had a talent for medium. Music. Was that in her later part of her life? Or, oh no, or, or, no. no, she was quite young at the time. Okay. She, was, she was a she was not much more than a girl at that time uh-huh. Uh-huh. when she did that because because um, Blybond's work was quite early on in her life, and then right. you know she was involved with the Theosophists. She became an initiate of, of the Golden Dawn, mm-hmm. and just one thing to led to another. And of course, being the strong-minded person she was, she ended up founding her own magical lodge. That's what you did. That, that was and the fraternity of the inner light, right? That, uh, that was the fraternity, now society, of the inner light, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she got that going and got a bunch of followers and got enough of a budget to be able to function. Um, she also, th- there, is, there is a thing that I do not know anyone has tracked down yet, but she talks in a couple of places about writing as though she did a lot of it back before she wrote her novels. And I have suspected that she, like a number of occultists at that time, actually made a living doing pulp fiction for the, oh, really? for the cheap magazines at the time. Her later fiction reads like somebody who did pulp. Yeah, that that is true. <laughs> I've never thought yeah. of it. Yes, yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I don't know, somebody would have to get into, um, let's see, Christine Hamble Thompson, who herself an occult writer and a significant mm-hmm. figure, um, was the unfortunate literary agent. And if someone were to go <laughs> digging in... Christine Campbell Thompson's files and look for pseudonyms and then go chasing down stuff in old, um, the old pulp archives, they might find some very interesting stuff. Right. Well, that, that's, that's a fascinating idea. I never thought of that. Of course, oh. we, we, ha- we have spoken here with Ian Rees in another, in another episode of this podcast on the Unfortunate Novels. And, and mm-hmm. but, well, uh, well, we didn't come to that point, of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things, the thing is most occultists have to have a day job of some kind or another. Most sure. occultists have to do something sure. for a living. Sure. And a lot of them become writers. It's a convenient, you know, it's, it's, it's a convenient yeah. thing to do. And if, and, um, if you, if you have any literary talent at all, you know, you can, you can kind of fit your schedule around your magical needs. Certainly it works for me. Yeah. And so looking at her fiction and looking at the booming pulp fiction market during the period when she was building the, the fraternity of the inner light, I'm just looking at that going, Hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder if there's half a dozen pseudonyms out there, uh, you know, writing, you know, some, grubby detective novels and true romance or whatever else she might have written. Um, <laughs> a lot of people did make their living that way. Interesting. 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 
what I find interesting about her is what you just mentioned, that she moved basically from the Theosophical Society to the Golden Dawn, which already not many people did at the time, right? Uh, to to, to mm-hmm. be involved, deeply involved in, in both of them, mm-hmm. right? I think mm-hmm. she even she even led a lodge with the Theosophical Society and then she got very close with the temple where Moina Madras was leading, mm-hmm. uh, leading mm-hmm. it. Um, and the book that you have recently now published a book john uh, 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 on is the cosmic doctrine of course one of the mm-hmm. most and best known work and is it true that what she wrote there basically caused also the breach up with the golden dawn because they got in rouse about what she was postulating in the cosmic doctrine or is that a is that a false rumor? No, no the, no, the Cosmic Doctrine was not public when it first came out. Okay. It was available only to senior students in a, they, they, like mimeographed copies mm-hmm. were mm-hmm. handed out. If you became a senior student, you know, here's the real stuff. Many, many orders did that in those days. Yeah. No, the thing that got her in trouble with the Golden Dawn were her, was her writings about sex. Oh. When she published um, the Esoteric Philosophy of Love and Marriage, which is a oh, really? tame book by modern standards, she got called on the carpet by Moena Mathers immediately as soon as that came out and said, "What are you doing, revealing the secrets of the degrees?" And she say, and uh, the unfortunate thing, uh, I'm not a member. I haven't been initiated into those degrees yet. <laughs> and there was a certain amount of fussing, and uh, but. There, there were there were various problems, and a lot of it was simply that Moina Mathers had she was you know a strong-willed person, and she did not sure. want other strong-willed people in her organization who might take it over. Since, especially I mean, if they were women, right? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah uh, but 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 especially, I mean, she had seen the order. She'd been straight through the various explosions in the original Golden Dawn. Mm-hmm. She'd seen it blow sky high of because of a clash of powerful personalities, and she wanted to prevent that. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, she did too good a job and basically got rid of anybody who had any talent at all. But, you know, that's the way these things go. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, for, no, Fortune, Fortune was, there were not that many people involved in the Golden Dawn at that time. I mean, at its peak, the Golden Dawn had just a few hundred members. Yeah, and. Yeah. And, of course, the Theosophical Society was a much bigger operation. There were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people involved in that. But, yeah, Fortune became the head of the Christian the Christian esoteric lodge, the Christian mystical lodge, I think it was, of the Theosophical Society, and mm-hmm. this particular offshoot of it. And there was a lot that it had been kind of... Um, spinning its wheels for a while, didn't have anybody really running things. She stepped into the role. And then when Theosophy got too uncomfortable with her, it was that group of people who went with her to join the Fraternity of the Inner, or to found the Fraternity of the Inner Light. Right, right. It's quite a uh, common arrangement. Um, is Christianity and the Christian background very important in her occult yeah. work? Um. Yes, but not in any, not, not in the usual modern sense. These days, in most occult circles, you have this hard division between the Christian and the non-Christian. Mm-hmm. And so we have, we have Christian occultists and who are going at the non-Christian occultists, and the non-Christian occultists are going at the Christian ones. There's a lot of snarling <laughs> back and forth. It looks yeah. like you know two two cats on a you know on, on, yeah, on yeah, the yeah. in the backyard hissing and spitting at each other. In Fortune's time, that was not yet the case. 
Right. In Fortune's time, you could be a Christian and a pagan at the same time. She was. And she wasn't the only one. Um, Gerald Gardner, the guy who invented Wicca, uh, excuse me, mm, yeah. who inherited Wicca from, the, from a, an endless supply of third-degree grannies dating from the dawn of time, the guy who invented Wicca, okay, he was also a priest in one of the um, independent Christian churches. Oh, really? I didn't know that. He was an ordained mm-hmm. priest right. in, I think it was the ancient British church, which is one of the one of the independent sacramental churches. So here is this guy teaching pagan sex magic, you know, worship in the nude and all this kind of stuff, and flog me, baby. And then on Sundays, he's going to celebrate the Mass. How scandalous. This yes, yes. was <laughs> normal at that time. Uh-huh. Um, Ross Nichols, the founder of um, the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids, he was a deacon yes. in another of the, of mm-hmm. the various mm-hmm. um, minor churches and so on. An order that and you so, know very well. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And so you, you yeah, so you have the, you have this tendency to be to be able to bridge the gap, the, the gap mm-hmm. that didn't exist yet, to, to be Christian and pagan at the same time, to invoke Pan and Isis, and also to invoke the Christ. Right. And so Fortune was very heavily involved in both of those. She was comfortable with both of them. Her system of um, her, her set of occult symbolism, the idea that there were these three rays that occultists worked on. There was the devotional ray, which was Christian mysticism. There was the hermetic ray, which is ceremonial magic. And the green ray, the nature ray, which was mm-hmm. either Celtic or pagan Greek contacts. And her idea was that you should be if you're going to be a, 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 a successful, competent mage, you should be work on all three of them. All three, yeah, yeah. All yeah. three. So you need to be a hermetic adept. You need to be a devotional Christian mystic, and you need to have the green ray contacts, and you be up there dancing on the hill, invoking invoking Pan. <laughs> That's something that definitely has gone lost by by modern and, contexts now. <laughs> yeah, I hope we. I hope we can recover it. I really hope we it can. should be. It should be. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's a state of ba- the, the balance that that brings, the state of emotional and personal balance that that makes possible um, strikes me as something we badly need these days in the occult community and in the world as a whole. In the, in the world as a whole. Absolutely. Because mm-hmm. that's part of the reason is of the separation that we all go through at the moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but why do you think now in particular, in particular, the separation between Christian and pagan work, if we want to classify it like that. Mm-hmm. Why do you think at, in nowadays this has become such an opposition, like those cats that you just mentioned? Why? Mm-hmm. What has changed? Well, partly a, a lot of it has to do with the cultural domination of the United States. Because American culture had this very heavy schism between hardcore Protestant evangelical, Bible-thumping Christianity on the one hand, and the a whole range of rising proto-pagan and pagan and neo-pagan um, cults on the other. Going, this is going back to like ni- before 1900. In the late mm-hmm. 19th century, there were already um, feminists, early feminists like Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who were yeah. preaching paganism. Um, talking, insisting that the witches had been, in fact, you know, goddess-worshipping priestesses. The, the, the stuff the gardener did, there was nothing original in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> other, other than the flogging, he kind of imported that himself. But, <laughs> but even but, if that was not new. <laughs> no, it wasn't new. It was very, very typical for the English. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> but we don't have to go there. Um, we're going to get in so, trouble. <laughs> and we're going to get in trouble, yeah. But so, so you have, after the Second World War, when the United States rose to global dominance, American culture became, just had a pervasive effect on large parts of the world. And it had some good results. Um, you know, that's the, we, we, we got rock and roll to the British and they, you know, ended yeah. up um, giving us the Beatles in response, among others. But... Um, but it also had some bad effects, and the tendency for Christianity to become the sort of dour, um, interning, um, you know, everything outside outside the strict version of the gospel is this evil. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was very much an American thing, and I'm I'm very sorry that, uh, that that we spread that one around because we could have done around done without it. Yeah. Also, of course, it was very much one thing when um, this pagan this this pagan sort of stuff was just a few people scattered here and there, and it was a very different thing once the '60s happened, and you had pagan worship on the large scale. A lot of Christians panicked. And a lot of pagans started saying, oh, the Christians are the bad guys. We need to beat them. And the political squabbles we have here, especially here in the United States, between um, our versions of the left and the right, which are, I know are not left-wing or right-wing by anyone else's standard. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, that's, that very quickly sorted out with you know the pagans on the left and the Christians on the right. One, one more endless squabble between those the, the two contending forces that dominate American politics. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that spread fairly widely. We'll see what happens. I hope we can get past it. Yeah, yeah it's necessary. Book necessary. You recently, well, very recently published that commentary on the cosmic doctrine. Mm -hmm. And um, so what, why would you want to do this? What is in this book uh, that you think is needed a uh, commentary for nowadays for today uh -huh. and to to to, uh -huh. to bring it into the foreground again okay well the co i consider the cosmic doctrine to be the most important work of occult philosophy to come out of the 20th century okay. it is a profound set of metaphors and it's presented as such a collection a mm. set of symbolic metaphors used to train the mind to the perception of the the non-physical realms it's mm. it's brilliant and it's also extremely difficult to understand. It's, it's very it is, compressed, yeah. very compact. Mm. And, and, you know, Fortune's idea in writing it was, okay, here you go. Chew on this for the next five years, boy. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and that's, which is fine. But, you know, it's, it's not as though there are that many people who are prepared to go into something like this with, without the background that, you know, when, when it, when it first became available, when you first started circulated in 1924, um, everybody, all of her students knew ba the basics of theosophy. Everybody in the occult community did. All of her students knew the basics of a range of different aspects of occult philosophy and occult theory. Yeah. And nowadays, we don't have that advantage. Most people who are interested in occultism, they're interested in occultism. They, you know, maybe they, they dabbled in Wicca at one point. Maybe they've read a couple of books by Israel Regardi or by one of the chaos magic types or what have you. They have no notion of what Fortune is talking about. Yeah. And so what, what happened was I, I started this, I started this, this habit of doing uh, a monthly book club post on my blog. Mm -hmm. And what that amounted to is me doing a discussion of a chapter. Right. And very quickly, I ended up with a crowd of people around me going, wow, this is cool. Thank you. Can you explain a little more about this and that and the other? 
and by the time I'd finished going through the, the, the Cosmic Doctrine, one, one chapter a month, I basically had, uh, what, a 60,000-word commentary. So I oh, you know, mm. took it and edited it and reworked it and did the necessary changes to make it and, and place it with the publisher. And apparently the you know various people who are familiar with the cause doc actually like it a great deal. So I, I'm just I didn't plan on doing a commentary, but it, that's what it, that's the way it turned out. And apparently people find it useful. So yeah. I'm hoping that it will I'm hoping that it'll give more people a chance to to get in under the hood of the cosmic doctrine to understand why. It approaches things in the strange ways that it does. Why is it for you the most important book in the field in the 20th century? What what makes it so special and different from others? Um, it is an attempt to communicate the state, the the mode of thinking and state of consciousness of an occult adept mm -hmm. in terms that someone who's not an adept but is willing to work at it can follow. Right. Studying that book is an initiatory process. It's a mm -hmm. very powerful initiatory process. It's initiation on the on the planes of mind, but it has the capacity to you know pop open your head and and expand things to an extent that nothing else in the nothing. I mean, there are a lot of other good books in the 20th century. It's not as though here's the, the cosmic doctrine and then there's all this other refuse. Yeah. There's a lot of other good works, but of the various works that attempted that, whether we're looking at um, oh, Max Heindel's Rosicrucian Cosmic Conception or some of the important theosophical works or what have you, um, to my mind, the Cosdoc is stands out above them as being, on the one hand, the, it's, it's less verbose than most of them. <laughs> it covers in a fairly <laughs> modest amount of space what uh, you know, Max Heindel takes about 1,300 pages to do. Um, <laughs> and it is... It is um, it gives a lot of information about magical practice if you can decode it, if you can, you know, pick open the symbols and understand what she's saying. Yeah. And it cru crucially, crucially, it, it goes back over and over the point. These are symbols. This is not meant to inform the mind. It's meant to train the mind. Treat this as symbolism. Work yeah. with it. And that is crucial. Uh, you just said something very funny. I never heard the cost stock as being the cosmic doctrine. I must remember oh, that. The, the, the cost stock. The cost stock. That's that, that's apparently what what um the un, what the unfortunate students called it. it was the call of the cost. Oh really? I hadn't. I didn't for sure, really. Yeah. 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 Uh, but what just what you're just saying is also true for. Uh, maybe somebody like Eliphas Levy, who you, by the way, also are doing uh, on your mm -hmm. on your blog uh, at the moment, a chapter by chapter mm -hmm. analysis, which mm -hmm. I can only highly recommend to our listeners. Well, thank you. Um, that will, when it's done, um, another two years from now or so, um, yeah. that will also be turning into a book. I'm sure it will. And, and I'm, what, uh, we'll see what the publisher thinks. It's going to be like 100,000 words. It's going to be a <laughs> Wow. But, well, but it's needed with Eliphas Levy also. And, and Oh, yeah. But he also, he also, and you say that in one of the latest lessons, I believe, and um, he of course also expects that this, what he says there, and that's the same case with the cosmic doctrine, um, mm -hmm. um, it's not to be taken word by word, but you have to see be behind the words, between mm -hmm. the words, mm -hmm. and, and understand what we are talking about. Yeah. And, yeah. and that makes it a bit, maybe not so 21st century, because people have lost that Patience, should we say it that way? Mm -hmm. and my, my thought is people have gotten lazy. 
you know, mm-hmm. we're used to um, the, I, I don't know what you have in, whether you have these in Europe, but over here we have, you know, books on this for, the, for idiots and this for the complete moron or what have you. Um, <laughs> all of these books that literally they're designed for people with the intention, with the attention span of a hyperactive gnat. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, and this, it's, I've, I've seen enough people get past that and say, oh, you mean I actually have to work to understand this? And those mm-hmm. that don't simply run like rabbits once they discover that, then they buckle down and learn how to read and, and in the process learn how to think. Um, it's something anybody can do. It's just it takes work. And, you know, we're, we're all a little lazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but of course, laziness and being a working occultist doesn't really go good well together, no. right? Right, no. right. No. Yeah, well, well. Let's move on to the next oldie but goodie. <laughs> um, and it's somebody, he might be of the three we are talking about here mainly uh, today. Uh, the one who is least known, um, oh, yeah. in, at least internationally, right? And oh, yeah. I think even- it's... Even nationally, very few Even nationally, people. okay. John, John Gilbert, um, I tried, several of his students tried to talk him into publishing some of his material in book form. During mm-hmm. his life, he would not do it. Really? He just really? would not do it. He, he wanted to teach his students, and that was it. So he was, mm-hmm. he, he was a, you know, in his own way, a very quiet man. He didn't want the publicity. He wanted to find students and pass on this stuff, and um, he wanted to make a living. But he was mm-hmm. not willing to do the publicity thing. Um, I, if, if he'd been willing to, I could have, I, I, I had already talked to a couple of publishers. We, I could have had him, his name all over the place, but right. as it is, had to wait until after he'd passed. And um, of course, a couple of his books are now out. Yeah. But, well, as you just, yeah. as you just, as you just said, um, um, so you, you were one of his, he, he was one of your teachers, right? And, yeah, yes. uh, yeah. and um, when you ask Mr. Google, John Gilbert, of course, the famous actor comes out and um, then you yeah. say, okay, you have to add maybe tarot, maybe that's fine. Something. Then mm-hmm. you find all that book that you just read, that you just edited mm-hmm. for, at the door of tarot, mm-hmm. but you don't mm-hmm. find anything about him, right? About who he was, where he was. So please, yeah. John Michael okay. Greer, tell the us basic- about John Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The basics, the basics for John Gilbert is that he, he grew up in um, South Dakota and Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, he became a school teacher for a while, uh, married, had children, this kind of stuff, gradually got involved in esoteric study. Well, in, in, in Colorado, he met um, his, his two main teachers, um, Juliet Ashley on the one hand, Dr. Juliet Ashley, and um, Matthew Shaw, who went by the name Rodon Staros, which um, those, those are my readers, who, those are our listeners who know, uh-huh. their Greek will know means Rose Cross. Right. And um, these two, they had their own, there's a long story behind each of them, but um, by the time John met them, there, was, there had been this, this group of esoteric orders, half a dozen of them, that were active more or less in the Denver and Boulder, Colorado areas, and they'd more or less sort of folded into a single small group of people. This was what, in you, what years are we talking about here? When, when we're talking about be? the ni- 1950, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, a time when occultism was big, but not the old-fashioned orders. 
Right. Everyone wanted to run out and throw off their clothes and dance around naked in the woods. That yeah. was the <laughs> Or they wanted to do golden dawn. There was, it, we were ta- I mentioned the Beatles earlier. We had a British invasion in, of the same kind in the occult field. There was a, a long while in the, in the second half of the 20th century when most American occultists thought that everything significant from occult in, in the occult world came into being between uh, the founding of the Golden Dawn in 1887 and um, whenever Gerald Gardner finished, you know, writing the first, his first book of shadows mm-hmm. um, in about in about 1947. Um, if it wasn't the Golden Dawn or Aleister Crowley or Dion Fortune or um, Gerald Gardner or one of the other first generation of, of British Wicca types, they didn't know about it. They didn't want to hear about it. Right. And mm-hmm. so. American orders, homegrown American occult orders, just practically withered on the vine. Many of them went out of existence. And there was this little circle of orders in, that were mostly active in Colorado. There was the Ancient Order of Druids in America. There was the, um, the Modern Order of Essenes. There was the Order of Spiritual Alchemy. There was, um, well, it went through several name changes, but at that time it was the Holy Order of the Golden Dawn. There was the Universal Gnostic Church, and there are three or four other things all wrapped Mm -hmm. in there together. And they survived by having everybody join all the other's orders. And so you had this situation where the same group of people, you know, on Tuesday they were going to a Druid meeting, and on Thursday they were going to the Golden Dawn, and and so on and so forth. On Sunday they're, you know, taking in a Universal Gnostic Church service. But it was all the same people. And so John got involved in this. And got deeper and deeper and ended up um, leaving the school. He was, I think at that point, a high school principal. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of awkward to do that and be an occultist in, in the 1970s. And so he ended up going to work as a, in, in, I think, um, insurance sales for a while. Mm-hmm. And, and, and various other things. He did a wide range of things to make a living. And he just, he did most of his teaching via the Internet. And it had just kind of wound down. He's this little self, self-enclosed circle rotating around John Gilbert because um, Julie Dashley died in the 80s and Rutland um, Starus, I think, died in the late 70s. And so it was John and his students. He was, he was um, fairly in the right around 2000. He started launching websites. Oh, really? attract them. Yeah, he started to, to attract the attention of more of more students. He was okay. he was early on as a you know as in trying to use the internet as a means of occult teaching. Yeah, and so, but it was right around it was right around two thousand one that I ended up in in contact with him by way of um, the American Tarot Association, which he was also heavily involved in starting, mm-hmm. and and he also taught he taught tarot. He was a an absolutely brilliant tarot diviner, one of the best people I've ever seen to, as far as doing tarot readings. He is such an extraordinary well of information, and um, it's so nice to talk to him and to listen to him, really. Every time I do that, I enjoy it so much. Like reading his books, when you read his books, it's just the same. It flows, it's full of information, and of course, his blog and uh, webpage. So, Echo Sophia is a Real find, Ecosophia, his blog page, a real find when you are on the internet. So also that will, of course, be in the show notes. Now we take a little break. Actually, I will repeat the last two sentences that we just heard to restart the interview after the musical break. So to bring you back in, because, of course, we are going to continue to talk about John Gilbert and his extraordinary tarot talent. 
Now for some music and the music that you're going to hear now and immediately after the end of the interview is well not really related but both are I'd say weird um, weird uh, proposals of how you can treat classical music. The first is two short movements from Vivaldi's uh, Four Seasons. I'm sure everybody knows Vivaldi's Four Seasons, at least parts of it. And those two shortish parts that you're going to hear now in this break, uh, I'm sure you have heard them, but not in this version. This is a version, a remix, a complete electronic and weird and wild remix by an artist um, going by the name TPRMX. Well, at least that's how he how he names himself on the internet on YouTube. And um, so we hear from Vivaldi's Four Seasons from Summer, the first and the third movements um, in this very powerful, very strong, very interesting remix. So enjoy that. And then we go back, meet John Michael Greer again and talk about John Gilbert and then Munisado and a few other things. And after that, immediately after the interview, it's Bizet Carmen. You, everyone knows Carmen, the opera. Da, 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 da. Yes, of course you do. But this is a Carmen fantasy and performed by percussionists. Percussionists, again, a completely wild and weird, um, in that case, acoustic remix. But it's really, it's really very special. And I'm sure everybody will enjoy that. Not only people who know the original piece, but it's just fun to listen to that music. So do not go away. Do not go away. After the interview, listen to Carmen Fantasy by those percussionists called the all-star percussion ensemble. They are great. Uh, and you can also uh, purchase their CD. There are others. It's other stuff on there, like uh, uh, the Scherzo from Beethoven Symphony Number no. 9, for example. Extraordinary, just with percussion and timpani. And it's really fun. It's really fun. So enjoy that. And of course, do not go away also, because after the last musical piece, I'll tell you, what's going to happen next week. Right, so now with all this four season in the electronic remix, then we return to John Michael Greer and we will then hear Bizet's Carmen Fantasy with the all-star percussion ensemble. Enjoy.
brilliant tarot diviner, one of the best people I've ever seen to, as far as doing tarot readings. He had this trick where he would draw one card in response to your, you'd ask him a question. You'd have a question. Mm-hmm. You'd mm-hmm. ask him a question, he'd draw one card, and he'd look at the card, and he'd give you the entire answer. Wow. And if you and if you asked him, okay, where did you get that? He'd point to every detail of the card and show you how he got the answer. <laughs> I, he was better. I, he, many of his students could do that. Um, I'm not very good at it. I'm I'm okay, but he's better at it than anyone else I've ever known. But so okay, he was, well. so we got it. We got in touch that via the tarot thing, and it just kind of spiraled from there. And but yeah, but he was he was fairly old at that time. And he got older and his health started to fail. And, you know, he was, he was always much better at teaching than he was as, as an organizer, as, as an administrator for these organizations that he founded. So they tended to fall apart on him. Yeah. And so the, la- the last few years of his life, he, you know, he, he kind of retired and then he had, some, he had a lot of health problems. And he finally died in um, the spring of 2021. So two years ago, two and a half years yeah, ago, basically. Couple, yeah. yeah, two and a half years ago. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, um, and that's, that's, that's the capsule biography of John Gilbert. The thing is, there were dozens, there were hundreds of people like this yeah. in the late 20th century, you know, occultists who had inherited this or that or the other, and depending mm-hmm. on what their skills were, how well they were good, they were as, as administrators, how well, they, how well they could function as the publicity and things like that, they became more or less famous. John was one of the less famous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to be honest, uh, you mentioned him briefly when we last spoke here on the podcast. Mm-hmm. We just touched mm-hmm. him basically and uh yeah, that was it. And then then I saw that those two books uh mm-hmm. I think they came out in March this year, 23 yeah. here. And mm-hmm. um one is called The Doors of Tarot and the other is called The Tree of Spirit, both with Aeon mm-hmm. publishers in in England. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you edited them and you also introduced them. Um is there more to come, or why did you choose those two in okay. particular? Those basically what what I was looking at. I, ha- I had a massive material. I had permission from his widow to assemble this and get it into circulation some way or the other. Those two books were pretty much standalone material. His churro, a bunch of material that he wrote on the churro, a bunch of material he wrote on the tree of life. And I published them in book form, partly because she can use a little, she can use the income. She's getting half the income from those. And she could use that for her during her retirement. But most of the rest, and this is something we talked about, the widow and I talked about, most of the rest of it has been released in in, um, non-commercial format. Um, one of the organ, well, two of the organizations that he was involved in, the Ancient Order of Druids in America and the Order of Spiritual Alchemy. Of course, the the Druid Order, I I got up and running back in back back in the first decade of of the new century. Um, I I became I became the head of that in 2003, and it's stepped down in um, what? Yeah, 2015. After yeah. 12 years, and it's it's yeah. chugging away. It's doing just fine. Um, the Order of Spiritual Alchemy, I got back on its feet, jolted it out of its torpor um, in what 2022, and it's it's going very well now too. Okay. okay. Um, the the Modern Order of Essenes, um, I'm in the process of teaching and initiating people into that. The Golden Dawn material, I simply packaged that up as a series of of, of four PDF books, basically. And yeah. put them on a, a non-commercial, um, you know, uh, use use what you want um, uh, license. Absolutely, yeah, which is a fascinating package, actually. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. 
and and start and put them, got them up on as many websites as they can find. The mm-hmm. I, I changed the name because the. Um, the order, the order as I received it, the material I received, there were passwords, of course, and signs and all the usual lodge stuff. And I took an oath not to reveal those specific passwords, the pass, passwords, those mm-hmm. particular signs, etc. So I had to change those, come yeah. up with a new set, and yeah. make such other changes as fit. So I gave it a new name. It's the Fellowship of the Hermetic Rose. Exactly. And anyone, mm-hmm. anyone who looks that up online will find copies of the stuff for download. Absolutely. But so that's... And then the the remaining part, the remaining chunk of the work is the Universal Gnostic Church itself, which is an oddity. And that's, I mean, I'm in kind of in the middle of getting that that launched back on its feet. Well, why, like, oh, why is it an oddity? Why, why, do, why are you saying okay. it like that? Okay, okay. Now, first of all, for, for our European listeners, um, be aware that religion in America is not like religion anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, in the United States, everybody founds a church. Okay, <laughs> starting a church is the is the easiest thing in the world. You, in some states, you don't even have to get a congregation. You just right. declare that you founded a church. We've got you know, freedom of religion in the Constitution, and the courts have ruled. That means you can start a church anytime you want. So, where so many European countries, the churches are these established things. They they've got a place in society. They've got laws bracketing around. Maybe you pay taxes to support them. In the United States, things are different. Mm-hmm. So what happened was that in 1951, um, one small um, fringe Protestant church, the, the Universalist Church, was in the process of merging with another small fringe Protestant church, the, the Unitarian Church. The Unitarian. And that became, that, that became the Unitarian Universalists, which is another story entirely. Right, and that but, that Mr. Shaw, who was also a teacher of Gilbert, that, he was he was part exactly. of that university. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. He was he Shaw was a was a Universalist minister, and he and two other Universalist ministers did not want to merge with the Unitarians, so they schismed. They founded ah, okay. their own church, and they found a a renegade bishop. Who would um, con- who would consecrate them with the historic Episcopal uh, lineage, and then later they got reconsecrated by some other people. You do that, and away they went. They founded the Universal Gnostic Church, and I I don't know if anyone knows what happened to the two who stayed back in Pennsylvania. That's where all this happened. But um, but Matthew Shaw wrote on Starus, ended up moving to Colorado. Um, where she, where he encountered Juliet Ashley, where he got you know involved in the same circle of esoteric orders that you know we were just talking about, and the Universal Gnostic Church sort of mutated from there, and it is a church that is without doctrine, which I know is another thing. So hold it, you've got to have that's, a creed. That's right an now. interesting thing. Yes. No, 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 no. The idea you? of the Universal Gnostic Church. This is not Gnostic as in the sense of you know, third century Johannite Gnosis, the world yeah. is horrible, you must escape. This is Gnostic <laughs> in the sense of Gnosis, in the sense of personal, spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. It's a be-all and end-all of its path. And so the whole point of the Universal Gnostic Church is to encourage people to pursue their own spiritual path, to, to seek Gnosis, to seek a personal contact with spiritual realities. Right. And if this sounds weird, it is. And if it sounds disorganized and um, hard to define, well, it's it's those things too. <laughs> and, okay. 
it's just it's it, it is its own thing. I don't think I've ever encountered a religious group quite like it. But I was ordained and consecrated. I'm a bishop, um, one of the very few bishops left around at this point of the Universal Gnostic Church. Okay. And yeah. Well, each so, time we I talk to you, we discover a new facet on your on your on your life. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah, I don't. Yeah. I do not have one. I do not have a, a mitre covered with gold or any of the other any of that other stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when I was, a, I you know not not growing up Catholic. When I was a child, I looked at those hats and you know looking at the yeah. bishop's mitre and it was going, Dad, why are they wearing a hat that looks like an alligator? <laughs> well, I, I never thought of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, have, you know, if they yeah, have teeth yeah. in the little gap there. They... <laughs> absolutely, no, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, those two books that you published or that Eon published mm -hmm. with, with mm -hmm. your help now, um, what is the particularity of them? What's the? I mean, uh, does it follow a certain? idea no. that's different from other books in that sense okay. or or okay. what is it the the tarot book doors of tarot yeah. is a collection of john's instructional lectures on reading tarot cards on and divination right divination divination yeah. it is about mm -hmm. he he loved his tarot divination he was extremely good at it as i mentioned mm -hmm. and this is presenting he, he he used to do these workshops where he would start a workshop at 10 in the morning with people who had never picked up a tarot deck before and by four in the afternoon after a lunch break they'd all be reading tarot really it, he was yeah he was a very good teacher and so this includes among other things all the lessons that he taught in that in those in that workshop it okay. includes all of his more extended extended instructional materials so you can learn his style of tarot divination and again it really focuses on that you know that single card approach how much can you extract from this one card i have found that most people most tarot diviners not all but most tarot diviners neglect a lot of potential clues in um in, in any given card, it's just, well, this card means that, and this card means that, and this card means the other thing. No, stop. Okay, here we have the fool. What does the dog stand for? Mm. Not just in the abstract, but in this question. They've asked you a question about something in their lives. What does the dog represent? Use your intuition, figure it out. And by the time you've talked through the fool, they all of a sudden, you know everything about them. And they're going, whoa, <laughs> this is weird. But yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of exercises for developing intuition. There's a lot of exercises for learning how to divine accurately. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's a really good handbook of practical divination. Um, the Tree of Spirit, on the other hand, is his Kabbalistic material. And right. he inherited from Rodon Staros a very idiosyncratic take on the Tree of Life. It's not really like any other that I've ever seen. Okay. Um, he is focused on... Um, first of all, he starts by seeing the um, the ten stages, the, the ten spheres of the tree of life, as the ten stages in anything coming into being. Um, so uh -huh. the keta, for example, represents awareness. Before you can bring something into being, you have to be aware of the possibility that it can happen. Uh huh. Yeah, and, well, it does make sense indeed. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, exactly. And you go down the tree from there. He had he was strongly influenced by the new thought movement. So there's sure. a lot of a lot of focus on okay, how can you apply this? You know, your life isn't isn't to your satisfaction. Okay, what are you not doing? 
how can you change it? How can you change your thinking in order to change your life? Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of that in there. The um, symbolism is is rather distinctly different, how he assigns the elements and things like that. It's its its, its own thing. And I find it very useful in practice, and a lot of other people have done so. And so I figured that was that was a good choice for a book. Now I ask you a question about both Diane Fortune's Cosmic Doctrine and those two books we're just talking about. Mm-hmm. Are they, in your um, experience, are they books for the beginners in the occult, or are they rather the book, books for people who already know a little bit their way around and want to mm-hmm. add a new edge to mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Um, the two books by John Gilbert are for beginners. They okay. are material that he presented to people um, just right off the bat here. You know, here's mm-hmm. some stuff on the Turo. Here's how we do this. Here's the basics of the Tree of Life. Let's walk through this a step at a time and right. make sense of the world. The Cosdoc is advanced. The mm-hmm. Cosdoc, you want, to, you want to go to the Cosmic Doctrine after you have a basic grasp of, of, of magic, a basic grasp of occultism. And once you have that basic grasp, you can hit the ground running with the Cosmic Doctrine and learn an enormous amount from it. But it really isn't suited for the complete beginner. Yeah. And do you need to be a Golden Dawn adept or a Theosophist no. or whatever? <laughs> is there a certain school to to, to no, get you, to her or is it just general you do, knowledge? You don't, well, you don't need to be an adept, fortunately, or the sales would be extremely right. small. <laughs> um, you can you can come at it from any number of ways. Um, you can make sense of it if if you've got a golden dawn background. Of course, a lot of people these days do. Dude. That's one way. If you have a background in old fashioned theosophical style occultism, you're going to find this stuff that makes total sense. Um, if you have a background in some of the other occult traditions, for example, the French occult tradition of Eliphas Levy and yeah. Papu and so Papu, on, yeah, um, yeah. you'll you'll figure out very rapidly. It's not mm. that difficult. So yeah, yeah that's ba- that's basically. But you need to have some idea of of how occultism works. You need to have some grasp of. Um, what the point of occultism is that you have to realize that we are not talking about Harry Potter here. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, you, you, I, I'm not saying that just as a joke. I'm, I'm one of the, <laughs> one of the problem, one of the problems that I've had since those books saw print is the number of people who have to, who have to be carefully, have to have it carefully explained to them. Harry Potter is not real magic. Harry Potter is Hollywood schlock. Um, and, you know, and the books are, you know, typical fantasy fiction schlock. Um, I, the, the, if you enjoy them, that's great. Don't try, you know, waving a wand and shouting ungrammaticus latinus or something like that and expecting <laughs> any kind of results. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because you're a muddle, you know, that's why it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, that, well, <laughs> one of the things that I loathe about those books is the, en- the, the endless rehash of the claim that there are special people. Yeah, special exactly. people can well, do that... magic and everyone else is just a muggle. And hey, I, I, I am they're... proud I triggered you. I triggered you. Great. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's, <laughs> that's one. Actually, in, in my most recent novel, I make fun of that, although I don't. Okay. I don't talk about Harry Potter as such. I had to invent a new, a set of bad magical novels of, for sure. children, and and so on and so forth. But the whole, oh, you know, oh, I'm special. I'm magical. You know, no, mm. you're not. Yeah. Every 
everybody can practice magic. Yeah, everybody can, can does develop, practice it all. Can you develop a, a little bit on that? Because I think it's a very, very important thing you're saying here. Yeah. Yeah. So, so can you can you can you give a bit more on that opinion? Okay. Uh, explain sure. a bit more sure, what sure, you sure. mean about, by that. Mm -hmm. Okay, the thing um, you will rarely find me uh, quoting Aleister Crowley. I'm not an Aleister Crowley fan, but he would you know even a broken clock is right sometimes. And in in his case, when he was pointing out that every will's action is an act of magic, he wasn't wrong. We are mm -hmm. all constantly practicing magic. To use Dion Fortune's definition, you know, causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. We're always doing that. The yeah. problem is that most of us are, don't realize that we're doing it. We're mm -hmm. incompetent at it, and we make a complete mess of things at it. You know, when somebody says, is, somebody gets frustrated and goes, oh, I am so stupid, they're casting a spell on themselves. Yeah. They're doing the same thing that a new thought type does by, an affirm by you know, repeating an affirmation. But they're doing it a negative affirmation. They're cursing themselves by making themselves feel more stupid, and that's going to play out. We're all <laughs> constantly doing this. So, yeah. you know, we all, everybody, anybody, everybody can do magic. You do not have to be a special person with talent. The, the myth yeah. of talent is one of the most one of the most malicious aspects of modern culture. This notion there are some people with talent and everyone else can just sit there and, you know, with their mouths open going, wow, you're talented. Admire. Everybody, mm -hmm. everybody, without exception, has some capacity for magnificence. Everybody in the world, every single human soul has the capacity to do something on the grand scale. It may not be the same thing. You know, different mm -hmm. people have different people have different capacities, but there's there is not this division between the talented few and the muggle ordinary. That is just that's malign. That's very destructive and very yeah. harmful. And I would like to get people to wake up to the fact that we all have the capacity for greatness. Yeah. And most of the reason the world that life sucks is that so few of us express our capacity for greatness. And more people were to wake up and say, you know. I can, I, I can actually do something. I can actually make, you know, make something happen. I can do things and make and, and achieve something. Then the world would become a much better place very quickly. And do you think it's by laziness that they don't do it or by lack of confidence or what is it? Well, it's, con it's complex. And there are various things that feed into it and various causes. And there's some laziness in there and so on. But a lot of it is the fact that societies do not thrive by encouraging people to be magnificent. Mm. Soci the soci societies function by making people into cogs. And yeah. to be a cog, you have to be just like the next cog. And so mm. there's this constant pressure that we all get from the schools, from the media, from our families, from our workplaces to just log through the motions, just do what you're told and smother that capacity for greatness, that capacity for magnificence that every single one of us has. And so, you know, the, the great challenge that we all face is that of telling society where it can stick its demands for conformity and mm -hmm. rising up mm -hmm. out of the mass of cogs to become what we have, what we are capable of being, what each of us is capable of being. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's the great challenge. That's, that's the challenge of human existence, right? You know, that's the great thing that we are here to do when we go through, and as the occult philosophy has it, we go through as many lives as we need to to get to the point of going, forget it. 
I'm not going to stay a cog any longer. I am going to as do as Plato, you know, Plato showed him in, in the allegory of the cave. I am going to shake off these chains. I'm going to ignore the shadows on the walls. I'm going to climb up into the blinding light and discover there's a whole wide world out there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to let you off that hook yet before we go to Munisadu. I have to keep you for a few minutes with that because I think uh -huh. it's some, a few very crucial things that you just said here. And um, I try to formulate the question which I not, was not prepared to ask today, but but I, uh -huh. I, I think it's an important one. Um, in what respect can, let's call it spiritual work or occult work, whatever you uh -huh. want to call it, right? Um, uh -huh. Can help in a society in which we live today where we use more and more uh, uh, split up because we are losing the, the 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 we are all concentrated on matter and quantity and and uh -huh, and uh -huh. uh, what uh -huh. we can measure etc etc and we uh -huh. lose the other part of it and uh -huh. and sometimes you know i'm even asking myself uh when i do that podcast would my time be better invested in doing a podcast and at least have my several thousand listeners each week and tell them interesting things or would it be better it used to do my own work spiritual work to to develop mm. myself and find my way better mm. through that crazy world we live in and um, mm. so can you can you give us a little i hope okay. you understand what i mean uh, no, yeah. can you can you no, give the, us a little bit of a tip here there, there are two there are two sides to the work and you've actually sketched them out very nicely um the first side of the work is doing your own work of mm -hmm. working on yourself, developing your own perception of spiritual realities. But when you've done that, you need to share it. Yeah. Because if you just, if, if all you do, now if, if, what, if what you're called to do is go off into a cave in the mountains somewhere and meditate your way to enlightenment, mm -hmm. um, that actually has an effect. That actually, has, because human minds are not entirely isolated from each Absolutely. other. We all share yeah. a unified consciousness. And so, you know, a sage in the mountains you know, deep in meditation, um, tuning in to, the, to, to the, the, the higher reaches of the cosmos, they're broadcasting that out into the world and making that more of a possibility for everybody. Mm. But they're also, you know, there need to be teachers. There need to be people who will say, this is where I went and this is what I found and here are some things that you can use there. Yeah. Again, Plato's metaphor for the cave. There's a point to going up in the sunlight and exploring things and blinking, going, wow, there's a world out here. But somebody needs to duck back down to the cave intervals and said, hey, guys, the real world is this way. Yeah. And, you know, so there, there's, there's a responsibility to do that. And whether it is, you know, whether it's your responsibility, whether it's not your responsibility, that's something everybody has to figure out for themselves. Um, I, I do feel that it is my responsibility. That's why I, you know, I write and blog and so on. Although it's also how I make a living. So, you know, sure, of course. Yeah. yeah. But, so there's, but there's, there's nothing bad to that because you, you exactly. can't do the teaching if you don't make a living. I mean, it's, exactly. Yeah, you know, I got yeah, to yeah. pay, I got to pay the rent and keep food on the table. Yeah, but, sure. Um, but. Um, but I can also make sure there's stuff available for people who don't have the money. That was one of the reasons why I, I put the Fellowship of the Hermetic Rose material out there in a, you know, in, in the in the free the free download form that I did, precisely because, you know, the, the global economy is not in good shape, especially in you know North America, in Europe. A lot of people are in fairly hard economic straits these days, and that's I my guess for a variety of reasons it's going to get worse. So I want to make sure that if nothing else, 
they have access to a set of, of you know solid solid occult training that they can they can study and practice without having to spend money. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, but again, you know, that's that's me shouting down, you know, clambering down partway into the cave and saying, hey, guys, you know, um, <laughs> check to see how tight your chains are. Consider coming this way. There's a real Absolutely. world up here. And of wow. course, you know, nine, nine, 99 people out of 100 are going, oh, you're crazy. But that's fine. There's one who's going to go, what? what? Yeah. Hold yeah. these chains are loose. What, what is it? What were you saying about stuff up here? And I say, come this way and see what you see. Yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, that, that's yeah. how I do it. But so, yeah. so there's, that ba- there's that balance between the two. And everybody needs to find their own balance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. I think it's, it's, that's really, really important. And, and uh, I hope everybody got it. And if not, you can rewind and listen to it again. And maybe then you get it. Oh, yeah. It's, it was really. Uh, you, yeah. You should, you should listen to my voice by the hour. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, I bought a book, um, well, uh, half a year ago, as I must mm-hmm. say, it was uh, The Tarot by Muni Sadu. Of course, I had heard the name, and it was mm-hmm. republished, re-edited by, uh, also by Aeon, a, a thick volume. Mm-hmm. I said, well, okay, it's another book on the tarot, and I got it, and then I opened it, and the first is the foreword by a certain John Michael Greer. And mm-hmm. I uh, stepped uh, into a phrase immediately in the beginning that says, books that deserve the label classic are rare and usually well-known to students of the occult. Every so often, however, a classic work drops out of print for reasons unrelated to its quality, and its rediscovery throws open the door to forgotten branches of occult knowledge. The book in mm-hmm. your hands is one of these. And mm-hmm. after now having... Well, I must say, I'm I'm also following your advice, John, uh, when you say you have to work uh, those lessons, as he calls uh, Munisadu, uh-huh. in it there, one by one, one a week, I do that. So uh-huh. I'm, I'm into a third of the book yet, but uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. it... I c- couldn't agree more to what you said, mm-hmm. and it's it's not just a book on the tarot. It's as its no. subtitle says, a contemporary course of quintessence of the quintessence of hermetic occultism. It's yeah. it's a fascinating, great book, isn't it? It's it's, it's an amazing object. Um, I originally encountered um, Munisato's book, The Tarot. In quite early in my occult studies, I was still a teenager at the time, and there was this battered copy in a used bookstore in Burien, Washington, which is where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And I bought it and went, wow, this is really weird and really interesting, and it's completely unlike any other system of occultism I've encountered. I mean, it, it has the tree of life, but it, <laughs> but it understands it differently. What I, now, the, later on, many years later on, I found out what was going on here. Munisatu, um, his actual name was Mrsislav Dimitr Sudowski. He was yeah. Polish, yeah, and he was um, a he was a student of occultism and and a small-scale teacher of occultism between the two world wars. Um, of course, World War II happened. Um, he ended up afterwards living in Brazil for a little while and then moving to mm-hmm. Australia. Yeah. And, um, but, he ha- but the Polish occult scene was very heavily influenced by, the, by French occultism. Polish and Russian occultism both got sure. a huge amount of influence from, from the Parisian scene. Yeah, pa- and so what Munisatu, et cetera, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Mm-hmm, and you mm-hmm. see, what Munisatu was passing on was the, it's, it's probably the best single volume introduction 
to the French tradition of occultism. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, it, is, it is more compact. It is more complete. You, I mean, if you, have a, if you have a shelf of books by Papu, you've got all this stuff anyway. But Monisatu, um, you know, distilled it down into 101 lessons. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and so that, that, was, that was the introduction. There are some things in it that are a little silly. There are some things in it that are a little awkward. Um, oh, a bit, a bit off, off track, maybe sometime a little bit. Uh, yes, yeah. um, the the the, the I, I, I believe I'm, if you're a third of the way through, I think you probably read the discussion of the evils of masturbation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which yeah. is one of the funny, yeah. one of the one of the great works of unintentional comedy. And, yeah. But you know, that's that's what pe you know, that's what people thought. In him. he was kind of yeah. And you have to live with those things if you want to get the whole picture, right? So, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so yeah, um, but it's it's a marvelous book. It is a book of um, of hermetic occultism using the tarot, um, using the, the French tradition of the tarot as its basic framework. Absolutely. And it is well worth going through just, you know, one, one lesson a week, get, you know, get yourself a copy of the, of one of the French decks. You could use the Marseille tarot. You could use, um, oh, any of the, the, the Wirth, yeah. the Wirth tarot. The Oswald Wirth uh, unfortunately, tarot. it's yes. become very hard to find, uh, a, an original Papu, um, tarot deck with also oh, the, the markings that he himself talks about here. Right. Yeah. 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 Not quite hard to find um, those. Mm. Yeah, it would. This, yeah, it would be nice to see that reprinted. But there, yeah. but really, any of the um, any of the French decks. Actually, it would be lovely to see somebody actually take Munisatu's um, instructions and create a deck to his specification. Uh, absolutely. Hey, you, you listeners out there, if you're a publisher, have the idea. If, exactly. If there's a publisher out there, if there's an artist out there, talk to me, people. We can yes. work this out. Please do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and I, I could so I could think that the would find an audience because because I, I, I checked it out. It's hardly you can hardly find it really. It's not there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so so Munisato's. I mean, this is only this is only one of his works. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's uh, yeah. He he was he, he. I mean, he was he was an overwhelmingly prolific. But he wrote like a dozen books, mm. and um, his book Concentration. Yeah. Is one of the best guides to concentration exercises that I certainly it it was rev, it was a revolutionary work for my in my own training I used it yeah. of course. Um, yeah. He, I, there's a book that he that he another was a book called Theurgy, which is Theurgy. on mm -hmm. again the French tradition of Christian esoteric spirituality and healing. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's amazing stuff. It's really amazing stuff. And so, yeah, you've got all of this work that had been – where he was literally the only representative in, in the English language for many, many years. You had his books, and that was about it. Yeah. And then um, his books in America, they were published for many years by this odd little firm in Hollywood that produced trade paperbacks back when trade paperbacks weren't a thing yet. Okay. Uh, Melvin Powers. I still have my battered <laughs> Melvin Powers copies. Okay. And then they folded, and there were, it was uh, the books were lot were caught up in some kind of copyright squabble for a while. And so I was absolutely delighted when Aeon Press was able to bring them back out because you know they they're, they're very valuable works. Yes, uh, and especially 
if readers who are into Martinism, who are into any of the French traditions, get these books, you will be glad you did. Absolutely. And there, there's something with those lessons I, I have hardly ever experienced. Um, you read this lesson, whatever, number 50 or whatever, for the first time, and you say, okay, I don't get it. I just don't get it. And mm -hmm. I put it away and I take it again next day and read it again. And suddenly the first little things open up and then mm -hmm. you need it again this third day and suddenly you get 50% of it. It's it's very weird, really, honestly. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, sometimes you read things twice or three times to really understand, but this mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. happening in every single lesson. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, it but is. it's a strange experience. Yeah. It's a good question. Now, of course, one one has to do a nod here to Professor uh, Grigory Mebez, yes, who, who was the Russian a Russian occultist just before the um, the Russian Revolution, Absolutely. who wrote a set of of lessons. Lessons and. At the time that Munisatu sat down to write the tarot, these things were totally unavailable. They had been published yeah. only in, if I recall correctly, Russian and Polish, which are not actually that common languages in the Western world. And so um, Munisatu gave full credit. He said, you know, these are heavily influenced. I'm drawing much of this material from Professor Mebis's um, you know, um, publication. But... He added, you know, this is his his stuff plus mine, and now it's available to you. Absolutely. Now, of course, Mebis's, Mebis's stuff is now available in English. Uh, for the last two years, and if I may say, yes. two weeks before mm -hmm. this episode, uh, John, mm -hmm. um, I interviewed the lady who published those Mebis mm -hmm. books. Mm -hmm. So if people who listen to this and are interested oh, yeah. when they see Sadhu, but they want to go back to his original teacher, oh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, listen mm -hmm. to that episode uh, with uh, Charlotte Cole from the UK, and mm -hmm. she is the publisher of those Mavis books. Fascinating, yeah. fascinating books yeah. also. It's, yes. it's, it's great that it, I, I, am, I was absolutely delighted to hear that these things were actually out. There was yeah. a copy of the Polish edition of Mebes's books in the, uh, the uh, library in Seattle, the uh, university library in Seattle. Yeah. And so I could, t I could page through it yeah. and look at the pictures, but I, I'm, I don't read Polish. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's a lovely language, but I don't read Polish. That, that so reminds me. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but um, there is also the third book uh, by Sadhu now again, uh, Meditation, right? Which is also mm -hmm. not bad at all. I mean, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a fine yeah. book. Seriously, you, if, if you just, if you are interested in a Chris, you know, Christian esoteric spirituality with, um, with some influence from, from Hindu Vedanta, yeah. <laughs> because he was, of course, um, yeah, Munisar, I, I was going to say exactly, was yeah. also a student of Ramana Maharshi. And so, you know, if, if this is, if this turns your crank, you can simply get Munisatu's books and spend the rest of your life working this stuff and get very good places. It's potent stuff. Uh, if absolutely. you're not that focused, on the other hand, get the books anyway and study them and incorporate what, what works for you. It, it yeah. is really robust material. And get concentration first because you'll need it. <laughs> yes. Get concentration. Yeah, I would, I would say concentration first and then meditation and then the tarot, yeah. and then theurgy. Theurgy. And mm -hmm. the other ones, the other ones are more. The other ones are more chatty, and you can get them pretty much any time. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, Munisado. Uh, I mean, the name, the, the pseudonym Munisado means mm -hmm. silent monk, of course, in Sanskrit. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and uh, of course, it that create was created through his in his teacher Ramana Maharshi, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. That mm -hmm. was uh, yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 
so but um i'm really happy that that those books reappear because uh, as you mm-hmm. said it's i think they're a valuable addition as you say in that forward mm-hmm. it's it's something yeah. really 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 important yeah, um, i was i was utterly delighted to see them back in print that was that absolutely was absolutely um well john michael greer now let's after having spoken about John Fortune, John Gilbert, uh, Muni Sadhu, um, let's talk about yourself for a moment before we have to leave again. Um, what are your next plans? What are you working at at the moment we should know about? Okay. And, well, we heard about the Alifas Levy book, which might be in the horizon far off. That's, but... that's, that's, that's several years off. Exactly. Let's see. As far, as far as things, I've got stuff, I've got various things coming out right um, in mm. the near future. I've got a book called The Secret of the Five Rights. Yes. Um, uh, some of our listeners will know about the five rights, or they're sometimes called the five Tibetans. They're not actually Tibetan mm-hmm. at all, but yeah. that's another story. Basically, what I did was take the five rights and the various material that's been published on them, the two different um, American sources from the from late 1930s, and which give two different versions of it, and then proceeded to trace it back and figure out what was the entire because there was this entire system of subtle energy alchemy within the body that mm-hmm. was um, that, that this was part of. And I was able to find enough sources and unpack it to explain, okay, you have your five rights, you have this great set of, of exercises, now here's the rest of the system, have fun. And here's the history of it, have fun with that too. Yeah. So that was that was an enormously enjoyable process. I spent a lot of time reading the most obscure volumes of, of you know uh, very early twentieth and late nineteenth century American occultism, which is always fun. Um, so there's that, and that that's for due for November, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah, that'll, yeah. that'll, that'll be mm-hmm. out in November. Let's see. Um, the big the the big news for me is that my novels. Um, I had I had my fiction with with one publisher, and there were some problems with that. And so the seven volumes of my my series, The Weird of Halley, will be released on Halloween on October thirty first of this year. On yeah, that very on, day, wow! Yeah, oh, yes. Well, you know, given that I'm that I'm ba- that I drew heavily on H.P. Lovecraft from this, and it's all about tentacle <laughs> horrors, except yeah. except it's not because the tentacle horrors are the good guys in my story. Um, I, I, I like okay. yeah, okay. I like octopuses, and so so those those are coming out fairly soon. I've got a sequel to um, the Way of the Golden Section, uh, which I'm doing page proofs on right now. I've got a couple of other books. Um, in various stages of putting together, it's a it's a busy time, uh, yeah. productive but busy. Very, very good. And they those uh, novels come out with Sphinx, I believe, which is also a brand of, Sphinx, of which, Aeon, right? Yes, yeah, Sphinx, Sphinx. Sphinx is the fiction brand connected to Aeon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So that, those will be out, and then the that that's the set. That's the seven volume series, and there are four other books set in that are not part of the same series, but set in the same kind of imaginary world, tentacles, and all. Those will be out in, in next year, that, and that, along with the rest of my fiction. Yeah. So yeah. And, and what about the what about your work around the state of of our universe and the world in particular? Anything <laughs> coming up on that end? Not at the moment. Um, I have. I, I am gradually working toward a book on the subject of enchantment and disenchantment. Um, talking about, um, you know, oh, the claim that we live in a disenchanted world. We all yeah. encounter that one, and some of the things that um, Jason Josephson Storm had to say about saying maybe this is maybe this isn't the case. 
And what are we talking about here? I've been doing blog posts on that, and that's all raw material. But yeah. really, I mean, I've, I, I wrote 10 books on mm. the predicament of industrial society. Yeah. And nothing much has changed since I wrote those <laughs> books, other than we're farther along the trajectory that I call the long descent. We're continuing yeah. to, to bucket down that slope at about the pace I expected. So, uh, you know, one of these days, I, I suppose I could rewrite the whole thing word for word and say, oh, yeah, here we are. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, but that brings us back to my interjected question before we started talking mm -hmm. about Sadhu. Uh, there yeah. we are again. Um, how much energy can the individual invest in the changing of the world or how much does he mm -hmm. have to keep for himself to change himself mm -hmm. to make to make the world viable <laughs> mm -hmm. and, that's, so, and that, that yeah. and again that's the question that each of us has to ask ourselves absolutely no one answer yeah absolutely. I, I rather like the that back in the old days of the, of the tall ships the old you know the old wind jammers um mm -hmm. the rule for sailors was you had one hand for yourself and one for the ship you could cling yeah. like grim death to the rope but you so the other hand was free to um, you know, to, tr to try to haul the sail in or whatever it was you were supposed to do. Mm. And so that rule, one hand for yourself, one hand for the ship, to one ex some extent, that's, that's what I would advise. You know, balance yourself between working on yourself and on working for the world. Right. It's a tough balance, but you know, nobody yeah. said life was easy. Absolutely. Well, that sounds like a great final word, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> John Michael Greer, it was, as always, a pleasure to have you here on the show. And uh, once again, I say I'm sure it's not going to be the last time. And uh, I, I will look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. And thank you for this one. And uh, well, good luck with all your projects and let's Perfect. stay in touch. We'll do that. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye for now. Okay, bye-bye.
isn't that great fun? Carmen Fantasy by the All-Star Percussion Ensemble. Right, and was it also great fun to be again with John Michael Greer? It certainly was wonderful. Thank you, JMG, for being with us here today and sharing your enormous knowledge with us in that always fun way. And I always like those little inter interlaced uh, remarks that he has about our time and about what's going on in the world. Great stuff. So thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for being here today, for listening to this show once again. And uh, I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. And you learned just as much as I did, by the way. Next week, what's going to happen next week? Well, next week, it's... Uh, we speak about a topic that I wanted to talk about for quite some time about occult publishing. Of course, not hidden publishing, but publishing of occult books. And we speak to someone who has already once in an other capacity been here on the show. Um, Jan Graham, Jan Graham, who uh, is, the, is with Inner Traditions, who is choosing works, who is putting the catalog together there at Inner Traditions. And of course, he knows better than many others the world of occult publishing. And I found it interesting how this world has developed over the last 10, 20 years. We're going to talk about this and um, uh, a little bit also at the occasion at, of the Frankfurt Book Fair, which will start a few days after the release of that interview next week. Right, so come back next week for episode 7 with John Graham and let's hear what he has to say about occult publishing. For this week, that was it and I wish you all a very nice week. Um, stay healthy and safe and take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.